chapter 4. Every great moment and every great movement of history, first of all, had a nudge at the smallest level. I'll say that again in a little bit just to make sure that we're hanging on to the truth of it, but let me give you a little background. Lately, I've been uh, really taken um, with this sense of an awareness of where we are and being able to push that backwards to understand the point at which where we are started. And life is awfully complex, and so it's a, it's a great uh, endeavor to try to figure out the starting point when actually it's multiple starting points that come together. But uh, this is kind of reiterated for me in some of the reading that I've been doing lately. Uh, I do a lot of reading, and a lot of it's tied to... Um, professionally and when I get up to preach I want to be prepared and all that kind of stuff but also do reading on the side that's just kind of for me and uh, I finished reading a book on the Civil War not too long ago and in that book it was specifically the author was specifically looking at the root causes that triggered the Civil War and I know that we get that kind of information in our history classes in school, but this was a, a, an historian's approach in looking at all the events that came into 1861 and the beginning of the Civil War. And it's an amazing study to look at some of the beginning conversations among key leaders that ultimately would lead the South to say, you know what, we're done with that. Great moments in history have a beginning point. At the smallest point, there's a nudge that pushes momentum that direction. Uh, I'm reading a book currently that is the history of the, uh, the, the American spy movement. That is, whether it's government or otherwise, how America came to push uh, into the spy game. And the historian who is telling that story, who used to work with the CIA, pushed it back to the beginning points of how that became something that they felt like needed to happen. Historians are really, if they do their job well, they push us not just to the events of the moment, but trace backwards to help us see how we got to that point. Small moments in time, I'm going to say it the other way now, small moments in time that are extremely significant often lead to great results. For instance, who would have dreamed that when Rosa Parks got on that particular bus on that particular day in the 1950s and refused to give up her seat, who would have dreamed that the civil rights movement would grow out of that and finish where it did? It's really not even finished yet. Small moments in time have a way of bleeding out across history and enlarging into great movements and great moments. Such is behind the words of Jesus as he refers to the kingdom of God. We're in Mark chapter 4. We're now into our fourth look at the parables that we find in the Gospels. And these stories, uh, stories is really not the best way to say it. These are teaching points that are drawn out of real life. And we come to this one today. And Jesus provides support for what I'm saying. Actually, what I'm saying grows out of what he is saying here. And that is, as we go through history, some of the smallest beginnings have a way of becoming major, in fact, history-making movements. Mark chapter 4, 
Beginning in verse 29, Jesus gives this parable. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And I want to take you quickly back to verse 28. The earth produces by itself. The Greek word there is the one that we pull straight into English, and it's our English word automatically. And so what Jesus promotes there is something that we need to get a handle on, especially in times like this. Let's make sure that we get the scene right. As as you know, I guess you know, uh, we're following up these Sunday sermons through the course of the summer with a Wednesday night Bible study on the parables that we're looking at, and I'm throwing a few other ones in there too for us to look at. Uh, as a way of handing tools to you so that you become better at just picking up a Bible and studying it for yourself and you don't need some bald-headed fat preacher telling you what it says. And so on Wednesday night, one of the things that I continue to impress on those of us who are gathering for those studies, and I'll say it very, very pointedly in here, when we come to these parables, we have to get the context right. Jesus tells these stories, these real-life situations with heavenly truth tucked in them. He tells them to specific people, and he tells those specific people these specific stories for a specific reason. Is that enough specific for you? Will you remember the word now? Okay. Jesus intentionally speaks into a situation that those people need kingdom truth to come out of. And so he tailors these real life stories to make the point about kingdom truth. So what's going on here? Is Jesus just letting us know that he's pretty good at agricultural awareness as a botanist or as an agricultural engineer? Does Jesus just say, I just want you to know, I know the life cycle of a seed? Because that's essentially what we find in this parable. Jesus has come forward. He has said, okay, here's what the kingdom, it's as if a plant produces a seed. Now, I provide that one because Jesus just starts with the seed. And this seed gets planted, and the guy goes about his business, the guy being the farmer here. He just goes about his business. He goes to bed, he gets up. He goes to bed, he gets up. And the life cycle of the seed now is such that it begins to sprout and it begins to grow. And when it begins to grow, eventually it gets to the point where it is fruit-bearing. And then it bears its fruit. And then, as is the way of all flesh, it gets hammered at the end. Well, cut with a sickle. You take your pick. You want a knife? You want to die by knife or beating? You get to choose. But in this case, Jesus lays that out. That's just normal everyday life. He takes a situation straight out of their lives. They all would have understood it. This is nothing hidden in this so far. It's just normal stuff. But Jesus takes the normal stuff of the life cycle of a seed and he uses it to push this heavenly truth. What is the truth in that, What is the context in which he says that? What is it he's trying to get across to them? 
Well, now, this is our first parable in Mark's gospel. So far, we've been in Matthew and we've been in Luke and kind of back and forth. But we're in Mark today. And the second parable we'll look at if we have time today is also in those other gospels. But this one is unique to Mark's gospel. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, to me, that says we really should pay attention to what Jesus is saying. And so we put it where it needs to be, where Mark has placed it for us in this ongoing development of the kingdom of God. Now, Mark hasn't said it that way here. As a matter of fact, if we go back and look at it, the context here, Jesus comes on the scene as an adult in the latter part of Mark chapter 1, and he shows up at the synagogues and he starts saying to them, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, that kind of grabs their attention. And then he begins to do these things, these miracles, and he starts teaching, and people are going, man, nobody teaches like he does. Something special about this guy, and he continues to do miracles until finally there is this budding sense of a, uh, change the metaphor on you, there's this beginnings of a tidal wave that sweeps across that part of the Jewish landscape, and those people are going, maybe this guy, he, the message is right, the presentation is right, he's got this power, maybe this guy is our Messiah. And it's into that that Jesus turns the tables on them in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. He's doing all this stuff, and they begin to see that, and and the the excitement is there, and the disciples who are following him are beginning to go, maybe this guy, we're not too sure. They won't get that right until the very end of the gospel. They're on this journey of understanding who Jesus is, but at this point, they're beginning to get enough of what he says. Go, Maybe there's something to this. Jesus, before we get to the one we looked at, and I'm not going to go back and do all of it, but he tells the parable of the sower, and he he kind of explains some of that later. But he gets to this point, and now he wants his disciples to get this truth. I, I think that the reason he wants them to get this truth, that I'll tell you in just a minute, is because I think some of them must have been the first Baptists. Because they want to know how. And they want to know exactly when. And they want to know why isn't this going faster? And we'll help to substantiate some of that this week and next. But I think that that's part of the situation into which Jesus is speaking here. He makes the He's giving kingdom truth. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And so today, especially, we look at the nature of the kingdom of God and what this parable seems to be teaching us is this basic point. The kingdom is growing. That's really not quite strong enough. Remember that word automatically that's in there? Here's a better way to say it. Jesus seems to be teaching these guys and us that the kingdom of God is always on the grow because God is the one who is pushing its growth. Now, I want you to let that hang out there for a minute because if I just finished the sermon here and walked away, then we would walk away without the slant that Jesus puts on it. You remember what I said? These are parables that give us kingdom truth, but in every one of them, there's a hook, and we all get caught on the hook one way or another. So we could just stop it here, and we could walk out and feel good about ourselves. I'd like to help us feel a little bit better than maybe we do with the truth that's already been stated. Let me see if I can substantiate that. If it is true 
that God is growing his kingdom. It is automatic growth, if you will. If that's a true statement, isn't it a little easy these days to wonder if that's, well, I'll put it this way. Does it seem by looking at the headlines of our day that maybe God's on break? That maybe God has decided that he's just going to set back a little bit. If the kingdom of God is on the grow and the growth is automatic because he's the one who is promoting it, then how do we answer some of the hard questions that we seem to be asking these days? How is it if God's kingdom is on the grow and he's in charge? By the way, use words carefully. We usually say he's in control. Um, you might set yourself up some, for some real theologically thorny questions using that language. God is, in fact, in charge. That's what this parable emphasizes. But if he's in charge, how do you explain people who go to church to worship him and get shot in the process? If God is in charge and the kingdom is ever-growing, how do you explain a group of what we would call foreign Christians who are marched to the particular location in a particular faraway country and summarily beheaded because of their faith? Where's God in that? I'll bring it a little bit closer to home because most of us are much more concerned about us and our rights than we are about what happens overseas with Christian people. How do you handle the God is in charge statement when we look around the culture of America in our day and the morality seems to be exiting stage left? Does God not care about that? Where's God in all of it? Here's part of my concern. I think we get so culturally Christian. Um, that's not a, a compliment, by the way. But I think in our time in America, we get so culturally Christian that we find movies that help us forget about those things that I just talked about. Was it about a year ago that I began to see all across Facebook this statement? I went to see this movie and then we post, God is not dead. Why does it take a movie for us to be willing to go online and make that stand? Didn't we believe that before we went to the movie? See, here's my deal. I I, I think that as Christians in America today, we, we stand in real danger of expecting our society to just follow suit with what we believe. And we have so done it. We've gotten away with that in America as Christians for a long time because we've been the dominant voice on the landscape. But let me tell you something. I'm not a prophet of doom or anything like that. I'm not pessimistic or anything like that. I want to be realistic. Here's the deal. The days of us being the dominant subculture in America are gone. We have Supreme Courts making decisions. We have lawmakers making decisions. We have people rank and file on the streets who do not believe that the morality that we stand for necessarily is right. 
And so what do we do in response to that? Here's what I see. Many Christians just lash out, and it's almost like a caged animal. And so we, we don't get in our way, and so we just lash out. Rawr! And the world around us is going, you had your chance, and now it's ours. It would be easy for us in this day, under those circumstances, to look at the reality around us and think, well, maybe God's on break. Jesus speaks this parable into a charged atmosphere. We need to get that, okay? We like, when we read through this, we just kind of pick it up and we read through and it's all about Jesus. And I mean, the gospel's written that way, I get that. But he writes, Mark does, into a very specific setting. And these Christians of this day are being persecuted. The audience to whom Mark writes his gospel are almost certainly Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And in the midst of that, into the midst of their difficult circumstances, Mark inserts this parable. None of the other writers put it in there for us, but Mark does. And he lets us know that Jesus says it starts small, but the natural, automatic life process of the kingdom of God is that it is always there, always going forward, and ultimately will win at the harvest. Now, that's a good place for an amen. At least that's a good place to let the truth of that just settle all over you when you sit down to Facebook. Or when you're talking to somebody on the street, some of your friends, and you're decrying how immoral America has gotten to be. Here's a news flash: God's kingdom doesn't stop at the borders of the United States. If it does, it stops on the outside coming in. It doesn't stop. God's kingdom is timeless. God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is pervasive. And Jesus tells us in this that God's kingdom is always marching forward. What a great truth for us when we think maybe God might be on break. I go to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is Old Testament. This is a book of Psalms. And this is a song of all the place for us to get spiritual truth out of a song. Really? By the way, wasn't that a great... All the music stuff was, was great today. But that last song, boy, the truth of that thing is just like, whoa, that's rich. And some of you are going, well, did we sing? I don't remember what we sang. You should listen. Brian is really careful about the theology that is presented in music here. It communicates. Part of what that song said is, we win. Actually, it says he wins, right? Which is exactly what Jesus says in this parable. Kingdom is on the move. It takes me back to that psalm, Psalm 46, verse 10. You can go back and check it out sometime. It's that one that I use when things are like really pressing and I'm, you know, stressed and someone kill somebody uh, and be still and know that I'm God. But you know what the second half of that verse says? I will be exalted among the nations. It's not just being still for the sake of me feeling better. It's about me being still and recognizing the truth of what he says here and that is that God is always growing his kingdom and what started, hear me very carefully now because I'm going to go, I'm going to insert 
a beginning point into the middle of an ongoing story. And I know, I know theologically there's stuff that I, I, I just want to do this so that you understand the illustration of what I'm getting at. Into this whole need for a Savior that began, at least for us, it began in the Garden of Eden. Into that mix, there's this teenage girl named Mary. Small beginnings, right? And into this mix, this teenage girl gets a visit from an angel. And the angel says, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. And she doesn't believe it. (laughs) And so it goes from there. And so from that little beginning, Mary, well, I'll take it off of Mary for a second. We'll put it on Joseph. Another angel or angel visits Joseph. And so the beginning now is two people big plus angels and all of heaven. And then after Joseph, there's a couple of other family members, Elizabeth I'm thinking about, who get in on what God's doing. And so this little beginning is starting to spread out some. And then after those family members, there's a couple of people who hang out at the temple and God communicates to them in certain ways. And so the circle gets a little bit bigger. And then after them, it's this little boy Jesus and he goes and he starts talking to the religious leaders and they're going, dude, this guy's got it. And then after that, he gets to be older and he goes to the disciples and he says, hey, you fishermen, come with me. And so the circle gets bigger. And before you know it, we're at this point in the life of Jesus and the whole countryside is ablaze with the excitement of a guy who is not like anybody we've ever seen before. Small beginnings move to great moments and movements in history. That's the message of this little parable. God in his design and his investment sees to it that the kingdom of God automatically is growing. Automatically is important there because that's another way of saying it does not require your help. I thought I'd get an amen from at least one section. It doesn't require your help. Now, that's not to say you don't need to be helping. Okay? I wouldn't even be here doing this if I believe that God didn't want us to help. The point of the parable is not that there's not a farmer because clearly there's a farmer. Jesus doesn't say he just threw the seed out there uh, and then he neglected everything. doesn't say that. It just gives us this statement as Jesus moves through. The point is not the work of the farmer That's where we like to take it because we like to take attaboys for ourselves. Look what I did for the kingdom of God. The reality is that the kingdom of God is growing anyway. It doesn't require you, but you do need to be helping in the process. That opens a lot of doors for me, and we haven't even gotten to the slant here. I've got a whole other parable, a whole half a page of notes, and we've got a few minutes. So what is our role? Here's why I think it's important that Jesus doesn't give the farmer's role through all of this, other than the fact that the point of the parable is that God is the one who makes sure that the kingdom of God is progressing. Sometimes God waits. We go through periods where the kingdom of God, maybe like I was talking about here, maybe we feel that way here where where it's as if God kind of says, okay, we're going to slow it down. It's not that it's not growing. It's just that we look around and go, "This we're going backwards, not forward. And that's when our God complex tends to jump in. 
I operate under this basic awareness, and that is as Christian people, we're no different than regular people in this world, and that is that we like results immediately. Is that fair to say? You want a good example of that? Go to the grocery store, buy a box in the freezer section of Hot Pockets. Man, if there was ever a food that the developer of the food should be thrown in prison for, it's Hot Pockets. (laughs) Some of the probably nutritionally way no good, but the worst tasting food that you could possibly put in your mouth is a Hot Pocket. I'll probably get sued for this. But here's the beauty of a Hot Pocket, just like a pizza. You just throw it in the microwave... 30 seconds, you're eating garbage. I mean, it, it's hot, but it's hot garbage. See, that's the, that's the bill for us. It used to be that we would buy computers only after asking, well, how fast does it run? Now they all run so fast that now the question is, how fast is my Internet connection going to be? Because we want it now. We, we operate on fast. That sets us up for spiritual problems. You just have to know that because God doesn't always operate on fast mode. Matter of fact, if I understand his kingdom's work, he just kind of lets it move at his pace regardless of what we vote for. And when it gets slower than we want it to be, our God complex kicks in and we believe, okay, we got to make this grow. You know, I lived in the panhandle for a long time, a number of years. Big corporate farms up there where they're, you know, farming thousands of acres, I guess. I don't know, as far as you could see. I, never once did I see, drive through those fields and see a farmer laying down by the dirt, talking to the seed, trying to get it to hurry up. Never did. Now, they gave them water and, you know, those kind of things, but I never saw a farmer trying to rush the growth process. You need to hear that, okay? God knows the time frame for his kingdom's work, and he is moving it forward. But when it doesn't go at our time, then we try to force the issue. I saw that. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because I think this is doing damage in our culture. We are not the dominant voice in our culture. So we need to be careful about what voice we use while we speak into our culture. So Friday night... uh, Kids were all going to be busy yesterday, July the 4th. So we, as a family side, we would go to the Houston Dynamo soccer game. Now, if you love good pro soccer, don't go to Houston. Go somewhere else. But we went to see this game between the Houston Dynamo and Chicago Fire. It was, you know, two last place teams you wouldn't expect a whole lot. And it, we got what we wanted, right, or we expected. Uh, but here's the deal. I walked out, and there was a couple of, I don't know, 20,000-plus people there, they said. So we're walking out. And as soon as you get out of this one door, then you, you just get assaulted by this noise. And it's one of these young, well, they're all young to me anymore, young street preachers who set up a microphone, a portable sound system, and he's standing on the corner, and he is in his most hateful, I can't imagine it sounding more hateful, voice saying to people things like you better turn or you're going to burn 
He didn't say this, but it was almost like I expected him to say, you're going to hell, and I'm happy about it. Now, he didn't say it that way, and I don't think he really is happy about it. And I don't want to get in. I know this gets a little bit quicksandish for me uh, to say these kind of things, but I want to tell you something. I'm, you know, if anybody ought to be able to hear that kind of stuff, you'd think a preacher ought to be able to hear it. I was totally offended. I wanted to go over there and in the name and in the love of God, take that microphone and cram it down his throat. That's what I wanted to do. You're killing the cause. But it's quicker. Hear me very carefully. It is quicker and you have more control if you set up a microphone on a corner and start yelling at people than it is to build a relationship with them and love them to Jesus. Now, we do that as churches. We don't set up the microphone on the corner, but we plug some program in, and we say, okay, this will get us there because we need more people. And we're trying to build God's kingdom if we do that, or very... We're very much in danger of trying to take it on ourselves. There is a balance, and we have to find the balance, but finding the balance is difficult when you work with people who are, we got to have it now kind of people. Hear me carefully. If you look at our society and you're just totally bummed out and say, America's going to hell. You know what? America's not the only one going to hell. I'm not talking about endorsing behavior. I'm talking about understanding how we relate in the middle of it and always we have to keep in mind that this is God's kingdom work, not ours. We participate with him, but he's the one who makes it grow. So we have to listen for his voice. We have to follow his lead. He will grow it. And that pushes me to the other parable. I'm going to read it, make one comment, and then we're going to be done. But the comment is going to be for you to carry with you. Verse 30, and he said, Jesus said, after talking about this seed and the, it's going to grow, it's going to do what God wants it to do. Now, verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, the smallest, or it's when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, about the size of a grain of sand. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger and all the garden plants and are then all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In other words, this seed, the size of a grain of sand grows to be some 10 feet tall, possibly. And so now it's not just that God sees to the growth of it, God sees that the growth of it is exceptional. It's not a surprise. It's not an accident that Jesus puts these two parables back to back. He's responsible for the growth, and when he's responsible for the growth, whoo, watch out. From such a small beginning, this great moment in history, when that seed of the truth of the kingdom of God hits your heart, And God begins to grow it in you. You can hide a grain of sand. It's hard to hide a 10-foot tree. So why don't we see a bunch of 10-foot tree Christians in our churches? Let's pray.